Chapter Eleven of the Black Moth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. The Black Moth by Georgette Hare. Chapter Eleven. My Lord turns rescuer and comes nigh, ending his life. Late that afternoon, Carstairs left Thur's house on one of his friend's horses. He waved a very regretful farewell to O'Hara and his lady, promising to let them know his whereabouts and to visit them again soon. O'Hara had extracted a solemn promise that if ever he got into difficulties he would let him know. "'For I'm not letting ye drift gaily out of me life again, and that's flat.' Jack had assented gladly enough. To have a friend once more was such bliss and had given Miles the name of the inn and the village where he would find him, for O'Hara had insisted on bringing the mare over himself. So Carstairs rode off to Trencham and to Jim, with the memory of a very hearty handshake in his mind. He smiled a little as he thought of his friend's words when he had shown himself reluctant to give the required promise. "'Ye obstinate young devil! You'll do as I say and no nonsense, or you don't leave this house!' For six years no one had ordered him to obey, it had been he who had done all the ordering. Somehow it was very pleasant to be told what to do, especially by Miles. He turned down a lane and wondered what Jim was thinking. That he was waiting at the green man, he was certain, for those had been his orders. He was annoyed with the man over the incident of the pistols, for he had inspected them and discovered that they were indeed unloaded. Had his captor been other than O'Hara, on whom he could not fire, such carelessness might have proved his undoing. Apart from that, culpable negligence always roused his wrath. A rather warm twenty minutes was in store for Salter. For quite an hour Carstairs proceeded on his way with no mishaps nor adventures, and then suddenly as he rounded a corner of a deserted road, little more than a cart-track, an extraordinary sight met his eyes. In the middle of the road stood a coach, and by it, covering the men on the box with two large pistols, was a seedy-looking ruffian, while two others were engaged in what appeared to be a life-and-death struggle at the coach-door. Jack reined in his horse and rose in his stirrups to obtain a better view. Then his eyes flashed, and he whistled softly to himself, for the cause of all the turmoil was a slight, graceful girl of not more than nineteen or twenty. She was frenziedly resisting the efforts of her captors to drag her to another coach, further up the road. Jack could see that she was dark and very lovely. Another elderly lady was most valiantly impeding operations by clawing and striking at one of the men's arms, scolding and imploring all in one breath. Jack's gaze went from her to a still silent figure at the side of the road in the shadow of the hedge, evidently the stage manager. "'It seems I must take a hand in this,' he told himself, and laughed joyously as he fixed on his mask and dismounted. He tethered his mount to a young sapling, took a pistol from its holster, and ran softly and swiftly under the lee of the hedge up to the scene of disaster, just as the man who covered the unruly and vociferous pair on the box made ready to fire. Jack's bullet took him neatly in the neck, and without a sound he crumpled up, one of his pistols exploding harmlessly as it fell to earth. With an oath the silent onlooker wheeled round to face the point of my lord's gleaming blade. Carstairs drew in his breath sharply in surprise as he saw the white face of his grace of Andover. "'Damn you!' said Tracy calmly, and sprang back, whipping out his own rapier. "'Certainly,' agreed Jack pleasantly. 
Un God, Imledu. Tracy's lips curled back in a snarl. His eyes were almost shut. Over his shoulder he ordered curtly, Keep watch over the girl. I will attend to this young jackanapes. On the word the blades clashed. Jack's eyes danced with a sheer joy of battle, and his point snicked in and out wickedly. He knew Tracy of old for an expert swordsman, and he began wearily. The girl's persecutors retained a firm hold on either arm, but all their thoughts were centered on the duel. The men on the box got out their blunderbuss, ready to fire should the need arise, and the girl herself watched breathlessly, red lips parted, and eyes aglow with fright, indignation, and excitement. As for the old lady, she positively bobbed up and down, shrieking encouragement to Carstairs. The blades hissed continuously against one another, for time after time the duke thrust viciously and ever his point was skilfully parried. He was absolutely calm, and his lips sneered. Who it was that he was fighting, he had not the faintest idea. He only knew that his opponent had recognized him, and must be speedily silenced. Therefore he fought with deadly grimness and purpose. Carstairs, on the other hand, had no intention of killing his grace. He had never liked him in the old days, but he was far too good-natured to contemplate any serious bloodshed. He was so used to Tracy's little affairs that he had not been filled with surprise when he discovered who the silent figure was. He did not like interfering with Belmanois, but on the other hand, he could no more stand by and see a woman assaulted than he could fly. So he fought on with the idea of disarming his grace, so as to have him at a disadvantage, and to be able to command his withdrawal from the scene. Once he fainted cleverly and lunged, and a little blood trickled down over the duke's hand. No sign made Belmanois, except that his eyelids flickered a moment, and his play became more careful. Once the duke thrust in fierce, and Jack's sword-arm wavered an instant, and a splash of crimson appeared on his sleeve. He, for the most part, remained on the defensive, waiting for the duke to tire. Soon his grace's breath began to come unevenly and fast, and beads of moisture started on his forehead. Yet never did the sneer fade, nor his temper go. He had himself well in hand, and although his face was livid and his brain on fire with fury, no trace of it showed itself in his sword-play. Then Carstairs changed his tactics, and began to put into practice all the arts and subtleties of fence that he had learned abroad. He seemed made of steel and set on wire, so agile and untirable was he. Time after time he leapt nimbly aside, evading some wicked thrust, and all the while he was driving his grace back and back. He was not panting, and now and again he laughed softly and happily. The blood from the wound on his arm was dripping steadily onto the ground, yet it seemed to Tracy to affect him not at all. But Jack himself knew that he was losing strength rapidly, and must make an end. Suddenly he fainted and fell back. Tracy saw his advantage and pressed forward within the wavering sword-point. The next instant his sword was whirled from his grasp, and he lay on the ground unhurt but helpless, gazing up at the masked face and at the shortened rapier. How he had been thrown he did not know, but that his opponent was a past master in the art of fence he was perfectly sure. My lord gave a little chuckle, and twisted a handkerchief about his wounded arm. I am aware, monsieur, that this is most unusual, and in duels forbidden. But I am sure that milor will agree that these circumstances are also most unusual, and the odds almost overwhelming. 
He turned his head to the two men of one whom released his hold on the girl's arm and started forward. "'Oh, no,' drawled my lord, shaking his head. "'Another step, and I spit your master where he lies.' "'Stand,' said his grace calmly. "'Be in. Throw your arms down, ear at my feet, and, uh, release mademoiselle.' They made no move to obey, and my lord shrugged deprecatingly, lowering his point to Tracy's throat. "'Eh bien!' They still hesitated, casting anxious glances at their master. "'Obey!' ordered the Duke. Each man threw down a pistol, eyeing Jack furtively, while the girl ran to her aunt, who began to soothe and fuss over her. Jack stifled a yawn. "'It is not my intention to remain here all night. Neither am I a child or a fool. Dépêchez!' Belmanoir saw that the coachman had his blunderbuss ready and was only too eager to fire it, and he knew that the game was up. He turned his head towards the reluctant bullies who looked to him for orders. "'Throw down everything,' he advised. Two more pistols and two daggers joined their comrades. "'A thousand thanks,' bowed my lord, running a quick eye over the men. "'In le duc, I play be still. Now you with the lash nose, yes, mon ami, you. Go pick up the pistol our defunct friend dropped. The man indicated slouched over to the dead body and flung another pistol onto the heap. My lord shook his head impatiently. Mais non, have I not said that I am not entirely a fool? The unexploded pistol, please. You will place it here, do men? Very good. His eye travelled to the men on the box. The coachman touched his hat and cried, "'I'm ready, sir.' "'It is very well. Be so good as to keep these gentlemen covered, but do not fire until I give the order.' "'And now, M. le Duc, have I your parole that you will return swiftly from whence you came, leaving this lady unmolested, and I permit you to rise?' Tracy moved his head impatiently. I have no choice. Monsieur, that is not an answer. Ever your parole. Yes, curse you. But certainly, said Jack politely. Play, rise. He rested his sword point on the ground and watched Tracy struggle to his feet. For an instant the Duke stood staring at him with face slightly outthrust. I almost think I know you, he said softly, caressingly. Jack's French accent became a shade more pronounced. "'It is possible. I at least have the misfortune to know Monsieur by sight.' Tracy ignored the insult, and continued very, very silkily. "'One thing is certain. I shall know you again, if I meet you.' Even as the words left his mouth, Jack saw the pistol in his hand and sprang quickly to one side, just in time to escape a shot that would have gone straight through his head. As it was, it caught him in his left shoulder. "'Do not fire!' he called sharply to the coachman and bowed to his grace. "'As I was saying, monsieur, do not let me detain you, I beg.' The duke's green eyes flashed venom for a minute, and then the heavy lids descended over them again, and he returned the bow, exaggeratedly. "'Au revoir, monsieur.' He smiled and bent to pick up his sword. "'It will not be necessary for monsieur to take his sword.' said Jack. 
I have a desire to keep it as a souvenir, yes? As you will, monsieur, replied Tracy carelessly, and walked away to his coach, his men following close on his heels. My lord stood leaning heavily on his sword, watching them go, and not until the coach had swung out of sight did he give way to the weakness that was overwhelming him. Then he reeled and would have fallen had it not been for two cool hands that caught his steadying him. A tremulous, husky voice sounded in his ears. "'You are hurt. Ah, oh, sir, you are hurt for my sake.' With a great effort, Jack controlled the inclination to swoon, and lifted the girl's hand shakily to his lips. "'It is a plaisir, mademoiselle,' he managed to gasp. Diana slipped an arm under his shoulder and cast an anxious glance at the footman, hurrying towards them. "'Quick!' she commanded. "'Sir, you are faint.' "'You must allow my servant to assist you to the coach.' Jack forced a smile. "'It is nothing. I assure you. Pray do not. I—' And he fainted comfortably away into stout Thomas's arms. "'Carry him into the coach, Thomas,' ordered the girl. "'Mind his arm. And, oh, his poor shoulder. And have you something to bind his wounds with?' Miss Betty hurried forward. "'My darling child, what an escape!' the dear brave gentleman. Do have a care, Thomas. Yes, lay him on the seat. My lord was lowered gently on to the cushions, and Miss Betty fluttered over to him like a distracted hen. Then Diana told Thomas to take charge of my lord's horse that they could see, quietly nibbling the grass further down the road, stooped and picked up his grace of Andover's sword with its curiously wrought hilt, and jumped into the coach to help Miss Betty to attend to Jack's wounds. The slash on the arm was not serious, but where the pistol had taken him was very ugly-looking. While she saw to that, Miss Betty loosened the cravat and removed my lord's mask. "'Die! See what a handsome boy tis! The poor brave gentleman! What a lucky thing he came up! If only this bleeding would stop!' So she ran on, hunting wildly for her salts. Diana looked up as her aunt finished, and steadied the pale face lying against the dark cushions. She noted the firm, beautifully curved mouth, the aristocratic nose, and delicately penciled eyebrows, with a little thrill. The duel had set her every nerve tingling. She was filled with admiration for her preserver, and the sight of his sensitive, handsome countenance did nothing to dispel that admiration. She held the salts to his nostrils, and watched eagerly for some sign of life, but none was forthcoming, and she had to be content with placing cushions beneath his injured shoulder and guarding him as best she might from the jolts caused by the uneven surface of the road. Miss Betty bustled about and did all she could to staunch the bleeding, and when they had comfortably settled my lord, she sat down upon the seat opposite and nodded decisively. "'We can do no more, my dear. But, yes, certainly bathe his forehead with your lavender water. Dear me, what an escape! I must say I would never have thought it of Mr. Everard.' One would say we were living in the Stone Age. The wretch! Diana shuddered. I knew he was dreadful, but never knew how dreadful. How can he have found out when we were to leave Bath? And why did he waylay us so near home? Oh, I shall never be safe again! Nonsense, my dear. Fiddlesticks! You saw how easily he was vanquished. Depend upon it, he will realise that he has made a bad mistake to try to abduct you and we shall not be worried with him again. With this comfortable assurance, she nodded again, and leant back against the cushions, 
watching her niece's ministrations with a professional and slightly amused air. End of chapter 11 Recording by Tara Mendoza Phoenix, Arizona, August 2011